Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at go.tcl.com slash TV. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, my guest is one of the nation's leading neuroscientists, Joseph Ledoux. His groundbreaking research has deepened our understanding of the brain mechanisms that underlie emotion and memory, which has opened the door to new treatments and specifically has opened the door for behavioral therapies for children and adults with anxiety disorder. Joseph Ledoux has been working on the link between emotion, memory, and the brain since the 1990s. He's credited with putting the amygdala in the spotlight and making this previously esoteric subcortical brain region a household name. Ledoux founded the Emotional Brain Institute. He's also a professor in the departments of psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical Center. In addition to articles in scholarly journals, he's the author of the books, The Emotional Brain, The Mysterious Underpinnings of the Emotional Life, 
and synaptic self, how our brains become who we are. He also has a book called Anxious and his latest book, which we didn't really talk about. That's why it's not at the uh, top of my brain right now. But, oh my God, what's going on with this? I just tried to put his name into um, Amazon and and it just didn't, it just didn't go so well. Um, his latest book though is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. That came out in 2019. And his book before that was called Anxious, Using the Brain to Understand and Treat Fear and Anxiety. Now, Anxious is literally, I mean, it's so dense and in the best of ways. It's just so uh, packed with science and information. It's it's honestly like taking a home study college course. It's, it's so informative. Um, and the deep history of ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got conscious. We didn't talk about that book, but we skirted around some of the issues that he talks about in the book. So at, at one point in the interview, I asked him a question about, you know, emotions and our soul and, and the concept of that. And, and, uh, and I also asked him if, if neuroscientists are control freaks who are really trying to just conquer figuring out the brain. And, you know, he was kind of like, no, I mean, you, you gotta really, you know, the brain is part of this 4 billion year evolution. And as slow as it may seem to us, you know, we are evolving. So there really is no completely mastering knowing the brain, I guess. But it was interesting talking to Joseph because I've always known his work. I knew that he was someone who um, was kind of a pioneer, as, as I just said in the intro, in getting the word the amygdala into our lexicon. And a lot of people just casually say the amygdala is the fear center. And that's really an oversimplification that it's beyond an oversimplification. It's just not true exactly. But um, he does explain how the amygdala has something to do with a fear response. But there's no such thing as like the fear center of the brain. And so I feel like our talk today, when before I interviewed him, I thought it might be this very scientific talk. And it was but from my end, because I'm not a neuroscientist, I don't have the language quite that he does. I don't have, I can't quite follow um, every trail of questioning and talking with someone in the academic way. So as he's speaking in an academic way, I can follow the train. I understand what he's saying, but I'm not learned enough to speak it back. So I would kind of come up with questions in the moment that were more like, okay, so let's talk about, you know, the emotion of that. And and do you think there's a human soul? And as I didn't expect the interview to go that way. And it was, it was my limitations that, that made me take it that way. But I think it's good because I am not a neuroscientist. I'm not here to be, you know, one-on-one neuroscientist to neuroscientist. I'm here to be all of our voices. And so it may seem like I'm a ding dong, and that's fine. <laughs> but I also really enjoy the, you know, talking to him kind of reminded me of talking to um, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who I talked to in one of the earlier episodes. And their work is very similar, and they have, they agree mostly on on their discoveries and on things in the brain. Because, you know, even within the brain, there there is an exact science, but there are some 
moments here and there that that tend to hinge a little bit on a philosophy. And there is this interesting intersection that I'd never really dug too deeply into with either of these guests between, um, I think, between philosophy and neuroscience, where there are just some things that are 99 and 1000% proven, but the way you look at it or interpret it or put a narrative to it is kind of up to your own personal philosophy, if that makes any sense. And so with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, you know, I think she's very like, no bones about it. Like, here's how the brain works. When you're having a panic attack, this is what's going on in your brain. And with Joseph Ledoux, it's the same science and it's the same, um, yes, this is coming from our brain and our nervous system and our brain is processing, but he brings it more to, to talk about emotions. And so in his work, he's used the brain to understand our emotions. And I think in other neuroscientists' work, it's like using the brain to understand anxious response. And so I didn't get too deeply into emotions with Joseph Ledoux. And, and a part of me regrets it because I, I really didn't, I don't think I really quite thought to frame the interview that way. Um, because I first wanted to understand the brain com concepts that he was talking about. But I did find it fascinating that in his work that he discovered, what he was famous for is saying, you know, we can study rats all we want and we can stimulate them and then take things away from them and watch them get addicted or watch them get anxious. But we cannot determine human feelings from that because these animals just, they do not have feelings. And I know that is very controversial to all of you out there. Like, my cat definitely has feelings and I can tell my cat's thinking something. And, and listen, I I say the same thing about animals and I'm all for projecting our feelings onto animals. But um, I think you get at what he was saying scientifically is that like, it's it's sort of that problem we run into, right? If any of you out there like myself have been medicated for anxiety or depression, when you talk to a doctor about it who only has, you know, a half hour with you to explain all of this in very, very simplified layman's terms, they go into their spiel about, we're just like cavemen and we have these leftover responses and we're having panic attacks and this medicine helps, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, at the end of the day, like the medicine definitely can help with some of the physical response and, you know, getting more serotonin flowing in our brain and all of that. But you would still have to account for the fact that you're a human being with emotions that are based on memories and that are based on habits and patterns. And that gets into my original talk with my first guest, Dr. Judd Brewer, who, you know, has really approached looking at anxiety and panic as a habit. And so that's where it's always going to be like, there is no magic pill for anything, you know, taking it back to my conversation um, that I had on the episode about ketamine infusions, you know, it's like, there are things that can help us get to a point where we are maybe relaxed enough or out of the deep despair of depression enough to then do something cognitive or emotional about our behaviors. Um, but there isn't a magic pill in that sense. And so a lot of these animal studies, they don't get to the heart of what somebody needs who's having um, any anxiety, panic, depression, or just, you know, being alive and being, having emotions about that. And so I really think it's fascinating that at the end of the day, all of our brains process the same way, basically, but it's our memories and our life experience that makes the brain say, oh, I'm in this situation again, whether or not it is, you know, a lot of times, again, well, especially in terms of panic, we think we're in a dangerous situation where we're not. 
And that could be based on our memories, you know. But so it's a little ethereal, like, but I think our conversation will make sense. And he's he's so fun and so pleasant. I was so honored that he came on the show. And my favorite part is that he's in a band called the Amygdaloids. And we, we talked a little bit about that. But um, I hope you get a lot out of our conversation. And I'll just let you enjoy my conversation with neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux. Just to start off for fun, I heard you have a band called the Amygdalas, and I see the guitar uh, in the background. Oh, the Amygdaloids. Sorry. <laughs> Tell me about that band. Uh, well, we were, you know, in, in uh, around 2005 or so, I met a, a colleague here at NYU who uh, had also written books for the general public. And so we had dinner together, and we discovered we both have Stratocaster, uh, Fender Stratocaster guitars, and that, you know, we yep. like classic rock and roll. And so we got together, and we jammed, played some classic rock, and had a good time. Um, and eventually, a young postdoc arrived in, uh, uh, in, at NYU, and she came to a party, probably a Christmas party or something we were playing at. Uh, and she said, well, I play drums. So she joined the band. And, nice. And then to November, for November 1st, 2006, I remember the date very clear because it was a big moment in my life. We got invited, I got invited to give a lecture at something called the Secret Science Club in Brooklyn. And this is a kind of, you know, local Park Slope um, um group that would just be interested in science and they would have people come in and talk. And so they said, well, and we'll have some entertainment after. I said, I'll bring the entertainment. So oh. right right as that was happening, uh, the drummer, Daniela Schiller, um, who had a, a research assistant named Nina Curley, and the guitar player was Tyler Volk. Well, Nina um, turned out to be a bass player. So she joined the group. So we, you know, we did our... Uh, let me clarify. So, the day <laughs> right before the show happened, it, we were written up before anything happened in the Long Island newspaper called um, uh, I forget what it's called, but anyway, it was uh, they call they described our show as heavy mental. Oh my uh, god, I love it so much! <laughs> and so we named our first album of that. But so we played. We had a, a a kind of set list that was all about classic rock songs about mind and brain like Jimi Hendrix's Manic Depression or Mother's Little Helper from the Rolling Stones. Right, yeah. 19th Nervous Breakdown, all that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of rock songs are about mind and brain and mental disorders anyway. So we had those, and then I wrote a couple of songs for the gig. And the, the crowd really liked those. So I started writing more and more. And we ended up, our first album, we called it Heavy Mental. Uh, and we ended up probably with five amygdaloids albums or so, and then I have two or three, maybe four others that I've done without the amygdaloids. So. That is very cool. And do you do any originals? They're all originals. Oh, we're they're all good, originals. That yeah, when we're, you first we're not started... good enough to do covers. We do originals. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> we'll be right back. With so many streaming devices out there today, what sets Roku apart? Roku players are made for one thing, to get you the entertainment you want quick and easy. That means a simple home screen with your favorites front and center, channels like iHeartRadio that launch in a snap, and curated selections of TV for when you only sort of know what to watch. Not to mention all the free TV you can stream, including over 300 free live channels on the Roku channel. 
Find the perfect Roku player for you today at Roku.com. Happy streaming. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Well, I'm going to start with, tell me why, uh, for better or for worse, you are known as the reason we know what the amygdala is. And, and if you can tell us what it is. And, and, you know, as I said, be as smart as you want to be. I'll, I'll help you dumb it down if you need to. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um... Well, I got interested in uh, the question of how the brain makes emotions in the 1970s when I was a graduate student studying split-brain patients. These are people in whom the two halves of the brain have been separated, the connections have been separated, cut uh, to prevent seizures from spreading around in the brain. It was a treatment for epilepsy in people who were without any other hope of having a treatment because the medications back wow. then weren't so hot. It's not done very often anymore because the medications have uh, improved. But yeah. the most important thing about these people is when you cut the, the connections between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, you've got language in the left hemisphere. So when you talk to the person, that's who's responding. Mm -hmm. uh, the right hemisphere can't talk, but it can get, you can put a stimulus over there by presenting it to the left side of visual space that goes to the right hemisphere. 
Mm. And so the classic findings from the 1960s by my mentor, who was Mike Kasanaga, showed that, um, you know, the, the right hemisphere could detect and respond to stimuli that you present to it. Even though it couldn't talk about it, it was, you know, kind of awake and alive and responsive. So it had some kind of sentience in a sense. Uh, but the left hemisphere seemed to be the one that was like in charge and conscious and could talk to you and tell you about its life and all of that. So that was kind of the, the key finding. So you, for example, they would put an apple, a picture of an apple in the right hemisphere. Okay. And then put the left hand into a bag and, you know, it would feel around and it would pull out the apple instead of the banana or, you know. Oh, so it knew what to look for. Okay. It didn't. It knew what to look for from the perceptual stimulus that had been put into the right hemisphere, so the left hand could pull it out. So it was definitely awake and responsive, and all of that. But the now, question can I ask is, one quick thing? Uh, the reason it knew what an apple felt like was not just from the picture, but from memories that it had in life of exactly. feeling an apple before too. Yeah, okay, I mean, we aren't born with knowing what apples are or yeah. anything else. You know, you got to learn that stuff and store it as a semantic memory. So anyway, uh, this was kind of like what the early work was on. Uh, and by the time I came along, I was at, uh, a graduate student at Stony Brook out on Long Island. And that's where Mike was at the time. Uh, and we had a new group of patients. And uh, these patients were operated on at Dartmouth Medical School. So we cooked up a kind of camper trailer uh, behind a orange, pumpkin orange uh, Ford van. And we drive it up to New England uh, and study these patients that were being operated on up there. And we had this one patient who seemed really, really unusual. So what we found was that it, in addition to being able to speak out of the left hemisphere, it could read in the right hemisphere. It couldn't talk out of the right hemisphere, but it could read. So that allowed us to put complicated questions into the right hemisphere, like, who are you? Mm. And then we had a bunch of Scrabble letters out there, and, and the left hand would come out, and they spelled Paul, P-A-U-L. That was his name. Mm. So... That right hemisphere, even though it couldn't talk, knew who he was. When we asked it, what do you want to do when you grow up? The response was, well, I want to be a uh, race car driver. And the left hemisphere, on the other hand, would say it wanted to be a draftsman when you would talk to it. So mm. you've got a sense of self in the right hemisphere. Yeah. You've got a vision of the future. You know, these are like the, the hallmarks of consciousness, self-identity yeah. and, and future thought. So this was the first evidence that you could have, you know, literally two minds in one brain like that. And um, it, was, it was fascinating. But one of, the, what, one of the things we discovered is that when we would put a stimulus into the right hemisphere and ask the left hemisphere, why did you do that? So like if we, told, if we put the word stand in the right hemisphere, mm -hmm. the guy would stand up. So then you say, why'd you do that? Because the left hemisphere didn't know why he stood up because only the right hemisphere saw the stimulus. He right. said, well, I needed to stretch. And mm. if, if we had him, you know, if we said scratch and so he's, or itch or something, he would scratch his hand. He said, why'd you do that? Well, I had an itch. Or if we made him laugh, we oh, said laugh, he would laugh. <laughs> why'd you laugh? You guys are really funny. So the left hemisphere was generating a narrative to make his behavior make sense. Oh my God, this is incredible. Let me just recap. Okay. I just want to dumb it down. So the reason actually that the guy stood and scratched and laughed was because you told him to. But uh, so let me ask you, 
so I knew you were going to say this, but like he created the narrative. Well, if I stood, I obviously needed to stretch. Is there anywhere in that brain that he was aware that you wrote stand? Like, it's no. not like a lie. It's like he really thinks he had to stretch. Yes. And this, you know, this was... Um, wow. So, you know, when we see these patients at night after the, the day's work, we'd go to a bar and, you know, have a bite to eat and have a few drinks and talk about the day's events. And, you know, what we came up with was, well, this isn't just like a pathology of the brain. This is what we do all the time. Mm. Our brain is constantly generating behaviors unconsciously. And in fact, most of our behavior is controlled unconsciously. But, you know, we all believe free will, so it's disturbing. It creates cognitive dissonance to think that you aren't controlling your own behavior. So if you see yourself behaving in a way that you didn't program, you know, you kind of generate a narrative to make it all make sense. Or if you, you know, if you are having an argument with your partner mm -hmm. and you say something really awful, well, then you justify it because, you know, my partner's being awful, so that doesn't matter, you know. And this is what we do all the time. We re-narrate our experiences. We create these narratives and re-narrate constantly. And that's what having a sense of self is, is a narration about who we are. And it's just a constantly moving target. And one of the things we concluded was, well, maybe emotion systems would be the systems that are generating a lot of these unconsciously controlled behaviors. You said so emotion, said, yeah. not emotion. Emotion, yeah, emotion. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I said, well, that's what I want to study when I leave your lab. I want to go mm. study emotions. And the only way to do that uh, really was to study animals, um, not, not to understand their emotions per se, but to understand these behaviors and the circuits in the brain that might be controlling these behaviors. So as a long way of telling you what you asked about, what I did was I adopted a procedure that was well known and well characterized from, you know, behaviorist times in psychology where they created all kinds of Pavlovian and instrumental conditioning tasks to study animal behavior. Well, I used this Pavlovian fear conditioning task, which was, you know, kind of stock and trade of the field. Um, and the reason it seemed so good is because you could take a stimulus that had no meaning for the animal, the rat, give it one stimulus, one tone, for example. Pair that with a mild electric shock one time, mm -hmm. and then every time later that the rat heard that stimulus, it would freeze and blood pressure and heart rate would go up, stress mm -hmm. hormones would be released, all the same things that would happen in a human. Mm -hmm. So even though humans have different things that are threatening them and upsetting them, uh, the way the brain responds is kind of similar in a rat and a human. And you were the first to do the rat thing, right? I know you're quite famous for that. Well, uh, I was the first to implicate the amygdala. Okay. Well, there was another guy working at the same time. We're, there were two of us at the yeah. time. Actually, three, I guess you could say. There were th it was a trio. That the first society neuroscience meeting where I presented any, and that's the big meeting for neuroscientists, yeah. um, where I presented any of this stuff on the amygdala uh, was in, I don't know, 1987 or something like that, 86, 87. And there were two other guys standing, because you know, they put all the relevant posters together. There was Mike Davis was on this side, Bruce Kapp was on this side. And we were kind of looking at each other. Hmm, I thought I was the only one doing this, you know? Mm. And so um, we kind of became friends and colleagues and competitors and all that stuff. 
Um, but we kind of set the, the tone of the field because we were all doing Pavlovian conditioning. We were all interested in the amygdala. And um, the reason you said, well, you were, you're responsible for putting this out in the public. I wrote a book called The Emotional Brain in 1996 okay. that summarized all of our work that was going, all of the work that was being done at the time on this, basically us three and then some other people were coming in at that time. And so I got the reputation for having... Um, you know, at least put this on the map in a sense. It wasn't that I discovered the amygdala. People have known about the amygdala and, you know, various things for a long time. Got it. But the circuitry, how the stimulus gets there and gets out was unknown. And that's what we contributed. And the emotional part too, because I know that I'd read that in the past, um, you know, like in the 70s, um, and this is where it gets like, I understand it, but it's hard to say it. Like emotion was uh, being thought of like a, subjective conscious experience and like psychology is perception and memory and you could learn a lot about the way the brain processes by doing like animal experiments but there's more to it because we're not animals but then there's an argument about um what consciousness is and isn't and what creates it right Right, is that kind of so let me rephrase you now (laughs) yeah 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 please correct the podcaster (laughs) because i don't know what i'm saying but i think i get it well so you know we had this procedure called fear conditioning so if you're if you're doing fear conditioning that implies you're conditioning the state of fear so then the question is what is the state of fear Uh, and all these people who had been using this procedure had a behaviorist background in one way or another. Behaviorist, of course, eliminated all subjective experience from psychology. They didn't, there was no, they weren't, no one was allowed to talk about consciousness for decades from the 19, you know, 15 to 1980 or maybe even later, you know, it's like everything was shut down. It's just about behavior. Um, and so fear was not a subjective experience for behaviors. It was a relationship between a dangerous stimulus and a response. So then some behavior said, well, in the brain, there must be something that is connecting that, that stimulus and that response. And so there must be a circuit. And that circuit became a fear circuit because fear would be what would connect the stimulus and the response. Now, from my split brain work, going back, the idea that I had at the very beginning and that I have had ever since, although I wasn't as clear as I could have been, is that the conscious experience of an emotion mm-hmm. or of any kind of conscious experience is a cognitive interpretation of the situation that we're in. It's okay. not an innate state. But the idea that you have a, a fear circuit that we've inherited from our animal ancestors is Darwin gave us that, you know, Darwin gave us that idea. Darwin was a great biologist, but it's been said he was not so hot a psychologist. Um, But he paved the way and made the psychology of emotion this tradition of having inherited emotions from animals. Now, really all you could see in an animal, whether you're Darwin or me or anybody else, all you can see is their behavior. Mm -hmm. So from imagine you see a dog that's been hit by a car and it's writhing on the side of the road and screaming. And of course, you project feelings onto that. The, guy, yeah. the dog is in pain. He's, yes, the dog is in pain. But you're not seeing the dog's pain. All you're seeing is reflexes. Mm-hmm. You know, all this shaking and, and crying, those are just innate responses. 
But that is not what reveals the essence of pain or fear or anything else. Right. It just reveals. It reveals these innate responses. Yeah. So here's the deal. So if, if the amygdala was literally a fear center, as many people have thought, and as yeah. I was introduced over the decades as having discovered the amygdala makes us feel fear. And yeah. you know, for years, I just dismissed it. I, it doesn't matter. I'm just doing the research. But eventually, it started to bother me. But let's say, <laughs> given this idea that the amygdala is a fear center, think about this. So if I present a stimulus to you subliminally, that means you don't know what the stimulus is, but it goes into your brain. Mm-hmm. And if it's a picture, say, of a snake or something, it will go to your brain. Your amygdala will be activated because we can image your brain while you're looking at this. And you see your, your, your amygdala is activated. Your heartbeat is, is increased. Your palms are sweating and so forth. But you don't feel fear. You don't even know the stimulus is there. You say, well, do you feel anything? You say, no. Did you see anything? You say, no. So the amygdala is responding to danger non-consciously. Mm-hmm. There's no subjective fear in the amygdala that is connecting the stimulus to the response. Got it, yep. So we, when we're afraid, let's say we're running from danger, running from a bear, famous William James idea, you're running from a bear. Yeah. Um, so are you running from the bear because you're afraid or is there some other reason? So mm. the fact is, because we expect that when we're running from a bear, it's because we're afraid, that's what we come to think about because we've been told that all our life, that yeah. you know, fear is the reason we do that. Um, but really what is going on in your brain is that there's a stimulus mm-hmm. that goes into your brain. It goes to the amygdala and causes the behavioral responses like freezing and so forth or running away. But it goes to your cerebral cortex, in fact, to your prefrontal cortex. And that's where you construct this cognitive interpretation of the situation, given that you're unconsciously triggered to run away because the amygdala is activated, just like the split brain patient, you know, right. you, you respond automatically and then you cognitively interpret that as, oh, I'm afraid. Right. Because you have in your brain what's called schema. These are like memories, collections of memories about topics. You have a schema about who you are everything you know about yourself and uh, all the good stuff you like about yourself and stuff mm-hmm. you hate about yourself, stuff you'd rather be than who you are, blah, 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 everything you know about yourself. Same thing with emotions, fear. Mm-hmm. You have a fear schema. Everything about danger and fear and all that's bundled into that. And all you need is a little piece of information like, okay, there's a snake at my feet and bam, that schema is pattern completed and that is presented into your conscious mind as fear. So that's why you feel fear, because you have cognitively conveyed that information into your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. So every conscious experience until the last microsecond of it becoming conscious is unconscious, right? It's a cognitive stream of information. And sometimes that stream crosses the finish line and makes you conscious, and other times it doesn't. So I guess my question is, It doesn't mean just because you suddenly have your first conscious thought about what the stimulus represents. It doesn't mean that's right either. Is that correct? No, no, it doesn't mean it's right. I mean, but it, it, what it means is, you know, if you have that feeling, that is your feeling. Nobody can tell you you didn't have that. Uh It's, it's, you're, it's incorrigible. You may be wrong to have that feeling in, in some social, morals, you know, ethical sense of something. 
but if that's what you felt, that's what you felt. There's no going back on that. That's just. What and do you, you mean felt. feeling by sensation, or do you mean emotional feeling? No, emotional feeling. So if you feel fear, yeah. and your partner says, "Oh, you're at, you're not afraid. You're angry," you know, or something like oh, that. Oh, I see. Um, they don't know what's what you felt, right? Okay. Maybe you should have been angry, but right. or jealous, or you know. Whatever. Uh, but what you felt is what you felt. And so that's why I think this, you know, this, you have this pre-conscious processing and that, depending on how the schema are activated and, and sort of pattern completed into an experience is what you feel. And then that can change in a microsecond again, right? you know, because emotions are dynamic. They don't, it's not just like you're locked in. Right. As the situation changes, you have to reevaluate and you re-experience something new. Fear goes from anger to jealousy and whatever. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. You wouldn't settle for watching a blurry TV, would you? So why settle for just okay TV sound? Upgrade your streaming and sound all in one with Roku Stream Bar. This powerful two-in-one upgrade for any TV lets you stream your favorite entertainment in brilliant 4K HDR picture and hear every detail with auto speech clarity. Whether you're hosting a party or just cleaning the house, turn it up and rock out with iHeartRadio and room-filling sound. Learn more about Roku Stream Bar today at Roku.com. Happy streaming. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65 inch V Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot so if amygdala isn't the fear center uh, is just a part of it well so the the brain doesn't really have psychological centers in the first place right so uh, anything is a product of a complex circuit that spans all kinds of brain areas so, you know, you start at the eye and that's going to go into the brain and go to the cortex and it's going to go to the amygdala and it'll go to the prefrontal cortex and go all over. And when, let's say, okay, let's just take simplify. We've got uh, a stimulus that's going to the amygdala causing you to, uh, your arousal to kick in and you're going to mm-hmm. now have your panic attack because cognitively you've interpreted that through the prefrontal cortex as what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The fact that the arousal is in your brain activating circuits that amplify brain activity and attention and uh, brain arousal uh, through circuits that are flooding your cerebral cortex with norepinephrine and Mm. serotonin and dopamine and all that. So you're, you're consciously being very alert now. So... There's a feedback between the behavioral output there and, you know, what the amygdala is doing and what the cortex is doing. So they're not completely different. But the content of the emotion, what the emotion is, is not determined by that low-level information from the amygdala. That's that's kind of like, okay, you go into a restaurant in Park Slope yeah. and it's the music is too loud. Uh, maybe more like Manhattan, but whatever. Uh, so yeah, the right. music is too loud. And I'm in Williamsburg, so it's always too loud. It's like the new Vegas. It's always something <laughs> no, it's, is pumping. It's Bourbon Street. It's <laughs> yeah. New York's Bourbon Street. It totally is. <laughs> anyway, you go into a bar, a restaurant, and the music's too loud. And so, you know, you're a certain age, so you ask the waiter to turn it down. And they turn it down. It's the same annoying heavy metal song. It's just less annoying when you've turned down the volume. Right, okay. And it's the same thing with emotions, I think, that the arousal and so forth doesn't tell you what you're experiencing. It just tells you that, you know, it's, it's unpleasant, you know, it's, it's too much. And so you, you can turn it down through meditation, uh, you can, through whatever. You know, if you can yeah. get that drugs, whatever you can do, you, you turn that down and then it's less annoying. It's, it's less irritating to have those kinds of emotions. So, you know, the problem with medications, though, is that imagine how these drugs are developed. You have a drug company that has a bunch of rats or mice, and Mm -hmm. they put them through these behavioral tasks like Pavlovian fear conditioning or, you know, various avoidance tasks and so forth. And they uh, find a drug that makes the animal less timid. In other words, ah, more exploratory. I and, see where you're going, yeah. And so they, the assumption is what we inherited fear from rats, mm-hmm. from not rats, but from our, our mammalian ancestors. Uh, and so if a rat is freezing less, 
when it has the drug, it's because it's less afraid or less anxious. Therefore, when we give the drug to a human, they should be less afraid or less anxious. But what you find is instead is that, say, a person with social anxiety on the medication finds it a little easier to go to the party. Mm -hmm. They're a little less timid, a little less uh, avoidant. But when they get to the party, they're still, you know, very kind of anxious. So if the psychiatrist had said, okay, instead of saying, this is a medication that will make you less anxious. If the psychiatrist had said, this is a medication that will um, attack your symptoms of arousal and, and avoidance and so forth, it'll be easier to go to the party. And then while you're there... If you know that all this arousal and stuff is is part of just the, the underlying machinery of, of your problem, you can then use that knowledge and use the medication to reduce your arousal a little bit and use that knowledge mm-hmm. to then go in, spend a few minutes at the party. If it's too much, step out for a little while. If mm-hmm. you smoke, go have a smoke or go to the bathroom, do something, get out, and then go back in. And you'll be able to, um, you'll find that this allows you to cope with your situation. You've been anxious all your life. You're probably always going to be somewhat anxious. But if you can bring these symptoms, these physiological and behavioral symptoms under control, it's Mm -hmm. going to be less of a problem for you. Mm -hmm. So when you put rats and mice through these things, what you're doing is activating their amygdala and other subcortical circuits to control these behaviors. But if a drug is doing that, and not changing your subjective experience, it's not doing what you want. I mean, it's not doing everything you want. Because if you don't feel subjectively better at the end of therapy, it didn't work. If you're still fearful and anxious. But if you know that fear and anxiety is not the the body stuff, I mean, that's part of it. It's going to be there like the heavy metal music when you turn the volume down. It's still going to be there. But it's going to, you're going to be better able to cope with the situation if you turn the volume down through meditation or drugs or whatever. But the drugs can't help the uh, kind of subjective emotional part where you show up at the party, you're having the same stimulus, and you might be like, oh, why aren't I better? I thought this was supposed to not make me hate this. So is that where the problem comes in is like they're judging their experience and and what therapy isn't teaching is like, you're going to still feel the same way, but you're just going to have the bandwidth to, if you choose to, talk to yourself differently or... right. Is that kind of it? That's exactly right. Because, you know, it's like you're you're taking anxiety and putting it into one package. Yeah. As if there's a medication that's going to, you know, make that whole package better. Yeah. And the medications are designed to change animal behavior. So they're not going to necessarily... How would they possibly change a subjective experience? How could you take a pill... It goes into your digestive system. It's broken down, enters your bloodstream, goes to every part of your body miraculously finds the exact right part of the brain and all of a sudden you're better. Like that's right. impossible. You know? God, well, okay. So go with me here on my terrible analogy, but I do want to talk about your, I'm not going to say dislike, but where you think neuroscience helps a little more than psychiatry with this stuff, but go with my terrible example. So I have been trying to get every guest to be on my side about this, but, but I'm probably wrong. That's why most of them haven't been, but I'll I'll tell you where I'm going in a second. But when I first, 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 first went to therapy, I don't know, I was 21, 27 years ago, whatever. I I had had undiagnosed panic attacks and anxiety for years. And when I went, what she said at the time was mind-blowing. Now I find it very annoying. But I got the old, you're 
adrenaline is going, your fear, whatever you want to say, she, the fear, the thing, everything that you guys are doing to the rats, you know, stimulating them and they're freezing. So this is an old caveman instinct. And when we were running from the blank that was chasing us, uh, we needed that fear because that fear told us to run and that's how we saved our lives and that's how we evolved. Okay. And I kept being like, at first I was blown away and she's like, so we just have some old wiring. And so, you know, there's nothing chasing you. There's no wild boar chasing you. So now you can use your brain to calm yourself down, cognitive behavior therapy. But I've always been like, okay, I understand that a cave person probably ran from a large animal, but we don't know. We didn't talk to any of these people. They didn't leave a diary. So I'm saying like, how are we to say, let me put it this way. I'm at the doctor and they hit my knee with the little reflex thing and I kick because it's a reflex. Now, if somehow that practice goes out of style and no one does it again for a thousand years and somebody tells the story, well, Bobby, humans used to have their knee banged on by a doctor and they kick because they were so afraid of the doctor. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> there was no emotion. I kicked because it was a reflex. So when I'm told that the cave people were running from animals because they were afraid and that I need that fear to keep me alive. I'm telling you, there's not, that's not right. I know that we cannot um, decide that cave people ran from the emotion of fear. I feel like you're, you're saying it's a, it's a, a, not a reflex, but like that amygdala says run. And then maybe you can put the story over it. I'm running because I'm afraid or I'm running because I need to stay alive, but you might not even be afraid. Like if you're trying to save your own life, in other words, they were trying to tell me that this emotion called fear made people run. Yeah. And I, 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 I that's where they lost. That. What's that? I call bullshit. Me too. So, so I'm, so I'm saying, on your side. Cause I'm saying like, you guys are telling me this is an old chemical thing for my brain, but yeah. then you're switching it up and saying in the middle of the same sentence, fear made them run. And I'm like, well, that's not a chemical. And people would be like, and they would get, you know, and I, I, they're like, you're trying to undo this so you can hold on to your panic. And I was like, I just want you to make sense. And I keep begging people, well, anyone, I'm so done with this caveman thing. It's not <laughs> accurate. And I don't have the reasons for it because I'm just a comedian with a podcast. But if you call bullshit, tell me why in your smart way, because I don't know how to say it. Well, I don't know if I'm smart, but here's my way. Well, so, no more about it than me. I'll tell you that. Um, so this goes back to why do we run? Because a stimulus activates these circuits in the brain at a very low level that control these automatic responses. So what the amygdala has are NH circuits that detect and respond to danger. So that will trigger, you know, fleeing, mm -hmm. freezing, so-called, you know, fight, flight, that kind of stuff. But that's not the fear. Fear is the cognitive interpretation of the situation. And, you know, it's the cavemen, you know, cavemen, cave people were people, they were humans. So they had some kind of conscious awareness, yeah. it's, you know. And so in parallel, they were afraid. But the story develops out of their folk psychology that the reason we ran was because we were afraid. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets passed on through the millennia to down to us. We're told that the reason we run from danger is because we're afraid. But if you look at the you know research on, on uh, fear and, and behavioral responses, there's a whole research on what's called discordance. 
which means that behavioral and physiological responses don't necessarily line up with how afraid you are. Yeah. You could be very afraid psychologically, consciously, and you're flatlining. <laughs> right. Or you can be highly, highly aroused and not afraid at all. Yeah. You know, so you can't use, you know, you can't just measure heart rate in someone and say, eh, that's fear. Yeah. That's, that's wrong. Uh, you well, have to. Yeah. Yeah, we wrote this paper recently called uh, Putting the Mental Back into Mental Disorders. And the purpose of that was that psychiatry since the 1940s and 50s um, has been on this road towards objectifying everything. Hmm. It started as a response, a way of putting Freud in the rearview mirror that, you know, okay, you've got Freud was, you know, did some weird stuff with kids and had all these ideas yeah. that were, some of them were kind of crazy. And so they said, we don't want any part of this. So instead of just saying, okay, well, there were some bad parts of Freud, because he was a, all about the subjective mind, they got rid of the entire subjective mind. Behavior is, we measure anxiety as a behavioral response or a physiological response. And so the drug companies brought in medications to do that. Behavioral therapy came along as well, which is that, you know, it's, you can use Pavlovian extinction to reduce um, fear because fear is a conditioned behavioral response. Um, and then cognitive behavioral therapy came along to add a cognitive component. But it quickly became, over the decades, became less and less cognitive and more and more about metrics. You know, as the insurance companies took over mm. the whole field, you had to have objective measurements, objective metrics. You could check off five boxes on a list of 20 and mm. say, well, that's anxiety. But you could have, mm. say, PTSD. You know, yeah. Let's say there's 20 items you can check. If you have three or four of them, I don't know, remember what it is, but let's say there's four. You have to have four to be have PTSD. Yeah. But you can have about a thousand combinations of four to make PTSD. So PTSD is a, you know just a, a name, an invention. It's not a thing. Yeah. None of these psychological conditions are things. They're collections of symptoms that yeah. we categorize in a certain way, and we assume that there's a brain center for those categorizations, which is crazy. There's no brain center for anxiety. Anxiety is a state of mind that we concoct on the basis of all the situational information we have at hand. That makes so much sense because, you know, when I go on stage to perform, a lot of times I will feel my heart racing. I notice I'm shallow breathing. I, I literally couldn't be less afraid on stage. I should be, but I'm not. I mean, I, most normal people don't like getting up in front of people. I, I literally don't care. It doesn't bother me though. I'm, I, if you measured my heart rate the same way you do, if you, here's how I know I'm afraid. In other words, is I don't want to do it. And mm -hmm. I'm standing there like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Me on stage, I'm like, oh, I feel all these things. Okay, I'm getting out there. Mm -hmm. And that's how I know that what I'm feeling isn't fear. It's just, well, I don't know, what maybe it's excitement or something. Um, yeah. I don't even care. Like my brain doesn't even go cognitive in that moment. I don't even, mm -hmm. I'm not even interested in figuring it out because one thing I know is I'm not afraid. So if I'm not afraid, I'm basically not interested because um, if I'm afraid, I have to do something about it. If I'm not, then I just got to go do the mm -hmm. show. But when I'm afraid, like you try to get me on a roller coaster or try to get me to bungee jump, I will stand there. I'll never do it, but I will feel the same physical mm -hmm. symptoms. Mm -hmm. But But my one thing will be I'm frozen. I can't, I can't. Or 
if I'm having a panic attack in a mall, I will run as though something's chasing me. And the fear, if you stopped me right then, I'd say, yes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm dying and I need to be around people. I need to get close to the hospital or something. And, uh, but I understand now that that, so that could be categorized as anxiety because, not because, and hopefully I'm getting this right. It's anxiety, not because I have this special disorder where my, um, sensations start going. My adrenaline starts pumping. That's not the anxiety. The anxiety is what I tell myself. You're dying, so you must run. But so people with anxiety disorders, the diagnosis is in in the the head of what we think, but it's not like, oh, if you get that like racing heart a lot of times before you go on stage, you have anxiety. Anxiety is not a physical diagnosis in any way, right? Even though people talk about it though, like it is. Well, that's, I mean, that's just my opinion. So yeah. um, other people have a different opinion on all this stuff. I go back and forth. I, I change my mind every day. I'm like, I, I just love to think about it. So the thing is that certainly when you're anxious, there can be a lot of physiological symptomatology that goes with it. But it, you can also be anxious without that. So mm-hmm. it's not the defining feature. The defining feature of an anxious state of mind is the state of mind itself. Now, the good news in that is if it's all in our minds, that means it's changeable uh, without, you know, too much other stuff. So, you know, I think that the the way to do it is you have to take a three-step approach. Mm -hmm. So first, you need to tame the amygdala. And one way that you might be able to do that, and this would only work for like, you know, phobias and stuff where you have a specific stimulus, is you present the stimulus subliminally to the person. You know, let's say you're a spider phobic. Spider phobics don't like cognitive behavioral therapy Mm-mm. because they have to be exposed to the, to the spiders. But if you subliminally present that spider to their amygdala, you, will, you can extinguish the amygdala. You can weaken the amygdala's response by repeating the spider over and over again without the conscious mind having to deal with it and freak out about seeing the, the, the spider. How do you do that? You pre- present brief flashes. Like super fast that I don't even know it. Yeah, you don't know it's there. Subliminal stimulation. Wow. And so you, I don't know if this will work. This is an idea, right? Yeah, But that's you just fun. flash and flash and flash and the person doesn't know it's there. And so your heart you know, begins to tame the heart rate and so forth. Uh, and then once you've prepared the amygdala that way, you can now turn to the hippocampus and memories. Hmm. So um, you've got, in addition to implicit memories controlled by the amygdala, well, you know, you see the, the spider and your heart will beat. You can weaken that through the extinction, uh, subconscious extinction, subliminal. But now you can, you, you've prepared the, the rest of the brain to deal with the information. So through the hippocampus, you now can change memories about spiders and things you know about spiders and things that uh, your relationship to spiders and all of that. So now you've prepared two parts of the brain in a way that you can do regular old talk therapy without having all the baggage that would get in the way of it. Interesting. So you're not opposed to talk therapy and helping solve. It's how else are you going to change the mind? I don't know. Well, I think that you're saying though that like there there should be a nice understanding of neuroscience. Like maybe if people read books on their own, you know, to understand the brain, um, so that it's less like special to them. If that makes sense. Well, you know, I think 
I'm one of the only neuroscientists who has these particular beliefs about that it's all, that ultimately it's about the subjective experience. You know, yeah. the, the subject, neuroscientists don't like all the subjective stuff because neuroscience is an uh, output of behaviorism. It's, it's and, cold in a way. It, it's kind of like it's because we've you know yeah. all of the people that were trained were trained by behaviorists, and so that became the way that the field was was created, and all the methods we use are behaviorist methods. But it you know it took me a long time to come around to this that if the only way to ultimately change mental experiences through mental interactions, you know, you got to have that sort of one-on-one relationship, but you can't do that until you get some of the other stuff out of the way. And neuroscience is important because it can help us with the tools to get some of that stuff out of the way. But ultimately, we've got to deal with it psychologically. So are, this is a dumb question, but are are emotions real? Does that make sense? Like, can we, can we just, um, narrow everything down to like, it's just the brain doing a thing and the brain's meant to keep us alive, not keep us happy, no. you know, all the talking points. Our emotions, no, emotions are real. I mean, they, they, every thought you have is real to you. And that's where the, that's where our reality is. Our conscious minds create reality. And that, if that's my reality, then that's where we have to, you know, work on changing it. But all of that other stuff has to be dealt with and tame before you can really deal with that because otherwise it'll keep getting in the way. You know, if you, let's say you you just do talk therapy, you just change, um, you know, the person's relationship to all this. Well, every time the spider comes along, it's going to reactivate the whole stuff that, that you've kind of like talked about. Right. So you got to get rid of that that underlying stuff so that you're now ready to talk about it and can support a persistence in the future um, that doesn't involve all that stuff. You've got to shape the mind mm-hmm. and and allow it to do what it can do, but you got to get rid of, you got to control the other stuff to allow that to happen. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at go.tcl.com slash TV. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic. 
treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. So going back to the person that was having the split brain uh, experience, I'm so obsessed with this. So back to the guy who you held up a sign that said stand and he stood and then said, well, I stood because I distracted. Well, we flashed it through these subliminal presentations. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think I quite understood that at the beginning. It was subliminal. Okay. Well, it was some, I understand. actually, it was, you know, it was, it was not that short. So it was 300 milliseconds rather than um, 30 milliseconds for subliminal. But Got it was it. going to his right hemisphere, which couldn't talk and couldn't communicate with the left hemisphere. So it was subliminal to the left hemisphere. I understand. Okay. That makes total sense. So in that sense, though, um, is he having an emotion? Does that make sense? Like, or, or the, is that person able to have emotions if their two sides aren't connected? Yes. They are. Okay. So the left hemisphere had a, a rich emotional life um, that he could talk about. It's much harder to probe the, uh, the right hemisphere uh, because there's only one patient of all the patients that uh, uh, I'm aware of that could read in the right hemisphere like this. Got it. And so it was only one that we could test it. So it might all be bogus because it's all based on one patient. But the importance of it to me was that it stimulated my thought processes about how cognition, cognitive interpretations of situations are the basis of our narratives and the narratives are who we are ultimately. I love that because, yeah, I I mean, you just, you know, I know that therapists have to keep it simple and they just want to assure you that you're normal. But like all this talk of like, well, they did this study on animals and I'm like, I know I'm not an animal. So what, what am I supposed to do with these thoughts? And you know, and then the thoughts feed back into the body, and then it's like that loop of like fear and adrenaline. Well, the, the animal behavior studies and physiology studies are crucial to the development of medications that can change behavior and physiology, but they can't change subjective experience. So, in my last question, I'll I'll, I'll um leave you with this thought. I have a thought to leave you with too. But go. Ahead. Oh, good. I, first of all, I mean, uh, this is, everyone out there, this is scratching the surface. And I know you have a book called Anxious, but your most recent book um, is called The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. And um, what I want to ask you about that is, is there another word, does conscious mean 
anything more than what we were talking about, like a thought that is obvious to you. It's not your subconscious. You know, you're thinking it is it conscious has nothing to, it's not an emotion. It's not emotion, right? Well, your, your emotions are conscious states. That's true. Right. But, uh, but scientifically, when you say conscious, you're not like secretly saying emotion. You're just saying any state you're aware of. Yes. So, okay. you know, this is, this goes back to the mind body problem and, you know, how, uh, the idea of a soul that is... I've, I've been thinking soul this whole time. Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> yeah. You know, the soul was... Descartes called the mind the soul, uh, but he also is responsible for kind of introducing consciousness yeah. into philosophy. And the conscious soul was how we chose our actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he was a Catholic, and so he wanted to... He said that we choose our actions um, consciously, and that's what, you know, either gets us into heaven or hell. Right. Um, so the soul and the mind were, were kind of the same thing at some point in philosophy. And eventually, you know, the idea of a, a physical basis for the mind, which is still kind of hard for some people to accept, but... You know, I'm a materialist. I think the mind is is uh, physical, part of the neurons and so forth. It's you know, it's a different set of neurons. You've got neurons and that are that are going to make you conscious, but you've got neurons that are also going to control your behavior unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just two different kinds of of neural activity. Um, you know, like John Locke said that, how do I know I'm the same person today as I was, you know, in, when I was a kid? Mm-hmm. It's because you have memories that ties you across time, tie you across time. And so there are three kinds of consciousness that are important. And I get this from the psychologist Indel Tolving, who I think was the, you know, the smartest psychologist since William James. He said that we have something called autonoetic consciousness, which is our ability to know this John Locke kind of thing, our ability to know who we are, that we had a beginning, we will have an end. No other animal knows that it had a beginning and an end. It's just in the moment, right? Right. But we can reflect on our past and our future. And that capacity depends on our prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Now, the second kind of consciousness is called noetic consciousness, knowledge of factual actual, you know, factual and conceptual information about the world. Mm -hmm. Probably most mammals, all mammals probably have this kind of uh, semantic knowledge. It's nonverbal semantic, but it's it's semantic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's another kind of consciousness that's also shared by all mammals called anoetic. And this is the puzzling one. Mm -hmm. But in a nutshell, what it is, I think, is the sense that your mental states and body states are yours without any content. It's just there. The, the reason we know this is because there are people who lose this connection to their mental and body states. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that they're theirs. They don't have that, that sense anymore. Oh my so God, sounds terrible. It's terrible. So what, the, what this anoetic consciousness does is allows your mental states to feel right. And that's not something you ever acknowledge that it feels right. It's only apparent when it doesn't feel right. So in these people who don't have it, then it becomes apparent that we're always feeling right or feeling wrong. If if we do something that's not quite right, we have a twinge of, that wasn't, you know, it's not not always about morals, but it's all about, Mm -hmm. is it what we expect that we should think and feel? Got it. so these three kinds of consciousness, you know, the the lowest kind, anoetic, is is said to only uh, to be what 
lower mammals will have mm. as their main way of interacting with the environment. They know what, you know, there's a maid or there's food, uh, and they, because it feels right. But they don't have content of that feeling of rightness. So they don't know that, oh, there's my girl. You know, it's like, it feels right. So then we're going to do the thing, you know? Yeah. And then the noetic is something that, in the most sophisticated sense, is probably something that primates brought in, that more of a kind of knowledge of the world in a more sophisticated kind of way made possible by prefrontal cortex. Because the oh. kind of prefrontal cortex that lower mammals have is very different from the kind that, that primates have. And then autonoetic, again, requires another kind of consciousness that's probably due to this region in the prefrontal cortex that only humans have. It's a small little piece, but it allows you to subjectively know your experiences. So I think that's the, the way to think about the, the, the vision about what, you know, what consciousness is doing in different animals. But there is still, I think, now again, can't prove this, uh, a soul, even though it may die with the brain. Because I, mm -hmm. in other words, like I'm probably just saying an individual or a subjective set of feelings. But in, in music where they say like, it's all about the notes you don't hear, jazz, I guess. I feel like in this whole conversation, there's been a blank space of a thing we're not saying. It's mm -hmm. like, you know what you're talking about. Subjective, emotions, conscious. It's different for each person. We're not rats. I feel what's been missing is like, I keep wanting to say the word soul. And when I asked about the, the guy with the split brain, I, I'm thinking, I'm saying emotions, but like, I'm also kind of thinking soul. Like there's a soul to us. Like you can feel it. You vibe with certain people. I know it's all chemicals, but I like to use the word, even though I don't think it lives on. Is there room for that in neuroscience? Well, so I think there's room for what you're talking about, but I wouldn't call it a soul because, you know, I'm really strict on the language because yeah. we, we get so, you take a word like fear and all of a sudden you're saying, well, if this is this part detects, part of the brain detects and responds to danger, it's a fear center. It acquires all the subjective baggage of fear. And yeah. I think you'd have the same problem with soul, but this anoetic consciousness is what you're talking about. Okay. This low level kind of awareness of who you are without ever having to say it, it you feel right about yourself, not in a, a moral or good or bad sense, but that it's just you. When things break from that anoetic state of rightness, then you have to come to terms with it. You know, yeah. th so you get a twinge of anoetic wrongness and all of a sudden you have cognitive dissonance. And so you have to cognitively reinterpret your situation because it felt wrong. Not in, again, not in a moral or ethical yeah. sense, just it didn't feel like what you normally expect. So lastly, I wanted to ask you this. Um, do you think, this is a philosophy question for the neuroscientist, you know, I know all humans experience all the ranges of feelings, including anxiety. Do you think a neuroscientist is a highly sensitive person who wants to study the brain? We all want control, but you guys want the most control. You want to slay the dragon. You want to win at chess. You want to beat the computer and be like, you can't surprise me, brain. Most complicated thing on planet Earth. I just conquered you. Is there any kind of, do you guys have control issues, do you think? <laughs> Why so, are you neuroscientists? So I, you know, I don't think you can put it all into a machine or AI or any of that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, our conscious minds 
are the product of this four billion year evolutionary history. And you would have to recreate all the little steps to get it all right, because it's not just about having a, let's say, okay, we know the circuit for autonoidic consciousness. And it's got like, you know, 15 million neurons and they're connected this way. But it's not just about the connections, it's about all of the, the hidden molecular and genetic changes that took place over that 4 billion years. That, and in the process, all this behavioral feedback from all of that 4 billion years of, of acting and responding. So it's not just about you know, putting a, a model of the circuit in the computer and all of a sudden it's conscious. Mm. You, know, you got to have that, you got that long history of evolution that makes, it, uh, uh, makes this crazy thing we call consciousness. So here's my, my thing for you. Yeah. Um, you know, you have your program here is called Anxiety Bites. Mm -hmm. um, so we, the amygdaloids had a song uh, that, that we played a lot that a lot of people like, and, and it's called Anxious. And in it, we have this line, it sucks to be anxious. Um, love and it. so it's like anxiety bites, but anxiety sucks too. So that, oh, I uh, love it. Yeah, you might there check was... out that song. <laughs> I your will. theme song. <laughs> oh my god, we should play it. Can we play it at the yeah, end of the absolutely. episode? Yeah. Do we owe you royalties? No, you did. <laughs> okay, good. Oh my god, this is so exciting. Oh my god, this is our first music uh, experience on anxiety bites. I love that. Anxious. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joseph Ledoux as much as I did. I don't know if we got the rights to play his band's song, Anxious, by the Amygdaloids. So <laughs> um, even though it's his song, there's still all these kind of rights things. And so if you just heard five seconds of a song that was Anxious by the Amygdalites. If you didn't, then you didn't hear it. But you can uh, check out his band by going to the link in the show notes. And I'm still cracking up that I have this like renowned neuroscientist on. And I'm like, okay, but guys, we really got to plug his band right now. Um, here are the takeaways from my chat with Joseph Ledoux. Split brain therapy um, used to be a treatment for epilepsy. But they used it as an experiment working with people's memory and emotion. When separated from the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere of the brain can respond to stimuli even though it can't talk about it. And the left hemisphere of the brain, when separated from the right hemisphere, can be conscious and can talk about what it's experiencing. Our brain creates narratives about who we are, and that's what having a sense of self is, a narration about who we are. Our emotions cannot be fully understood just by studying reactions that animals have to stimulus. The conscious experience is a cognitive interpretation of the situation we are in. It's not an innate state. Darwin gave us the idea that we have a fear circuit inserted from animal ancestors. He was a great biologist, but admittedly not a great psychologist. The tradition of thinking that we inherited emotions from animals is faulty because you can see an animal in pain and they are responding to stimuli, maybe by making noises or yelping or limping, but we as humans project our ability to have feelings about the stimuli onto what the animal is experiencing. And we are not correct about that. The amygdala can be activated when we are presented with a stimulus. 
it can cause an increased heartbeat, but that can be a non-conscious response. The notion that we run from a bear because we're afraid is not necessarily scientifically proven. It could be just because the amygdala is stimulated, which causes a behavioral response. Once the stimulus goes to your cerebral cortex, that's where you construct a cognitive interpretation of the situation. We feel fear because we have cognitively conveyed that information to our conscious mind. Medication can help with some aspects of anxiety, but it would be impossible for one pill to treat the subjective personal experience of millions of people with anxiety. Our conscious minds create our reality, but that does not mean that our reality is made up. Our emotions are absolutely real as we experience them. All righty. Um, I will say as we wrap up season one of Anxiety Bites, we just have a few more episodes left and you certainly can send an email. I don't know if I'll be able to read it on air before we wrap up here, but anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. You can talk about the episodes you've heard, share them on social media. I always do these fun and cool audiogram clips. You can find them. They are my pinned tweets on Twitter, and my handle is at Jen Kirkman, J-E-N-K-I-R-K-M-A-N, and that is also my handle on Instagram. And again, all of this information is right in the show notes, and you can click right on it. Thanks again for listening, and remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at go.tcl.com slash TV. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of Peanut Butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.